As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey folks, Dr. Tim Jordan back here with a brand new podcast called Raising Daughters. It's actually, the podcast isn't new, but this particular episode is new. And by the way, I'm, this is version two of a podcast that I put out this week. And for some reason, the, the volume and the voice didn't come across very well. I had some of my listeners very kindly tell me, hey, you know, it's not coming across very well. So I'm redoing it. It'll be, the, it'll be pretty much the same podcast, although, as you know, I oftentimes go off on tangents. But hopefully uh, I get the microphone problem fixed. And if not, then please contact me through my website. Now, the podcast today was stimulated by me having read three books uh, within the last six months. And these three books, which I will talk about in just a moment, begged the question for me, can we please find better alternatives in the military for young adults to experience risk, uh, adventures, mission, and purpose. Because I feel like too many of our kids feel like that's their only alternative when they have one of those kinds of personalities. I read a story about this guy, Draper Kaufman. He's a very famous Navy SEALs team trainer. And he said he was a very oppositional child, very wild, oppositional, always in trouble. And one time when he was five years of age, He was outside and he came in late and he walked right up to his mom and he said, Mom, hurry up and spank me so I can go back outside and play. That's the kind of adventurous, strong-minded, spirited kids that I'm going to be talking about today who need, I think, better alternatives. The first book I, that I read was called Where Men Win Glory. It's the story of Pat Tillman. I'll tell you a little bit about his life. Uh, he was a very active kid. He walked at eight and a half months. He and his two younger brothers are always outside. His kid was always running around, always in motion. Um, but, but the family also allowed the kids to have these open discussions about everything, current events, history, politics. No subject was off limits. So he was encouraged to think critically and also to be skeptical about conventional wisdom. He learned to trust himself and not be afraid to go against the grain. In middle school, they described him as being also very rambunctious. He got referred down to the office a lot for roughhousing, uh, climbing on the bleachers when he wasn't supposed to, talking while walking to class and to assemblies. He was this loud, happy, rambunctious kid whose exuberance they could not contain. In high school, he uh, played football, and he wasn't very big, and he realized early on that he'd have to block and tackle with 
with exceptional intensity to compensate for his small size. He did not want to show fear or vulnerability, even though underneath all that veneer, he was actually a very sensitive kid. He ended up playing football in college, and after college, he actually was drafted and played professional football with Arizona Cardinals. And after several years of being successful, he got a new contract that was very lucrative, and he walked away from it, a multi-million dollar contract, to join the Army. And he became an icon on post-9-11 patriotism. He enlisted right after 9-11. And even though he believed the Iraq war was illegal, and he felt it was about false reports of uh, weapons of mass destruction, it didn't prevent him from wanting desperately to get into the fight, to face the enemy, and, and, and to face the enemy fire alongside his comrades, to prove himself in battle. That's that spirit that I think sometimes gets directed to the military. He joined the Rangers to experience war, he wanted to be shot at. He wanted to, he wanted to prove his masculine pride. He wanted to show his honor, and he wanted to show his sense of duty and patriotism. And like many young men, he enlisted to be part of a rarefied warrior cult culture, the, the Rangers. He aspired to engage in mortal combat. He inspired for that since he was a little kid, itching to confront the enemy firsthand, prove himself under fire. Unfortunately, Pat was killed in action two years into his tour of duty, actually by bullets from his own troops. And it was a big stink because the government covered it up. They lied about the whole thing. I'll let you read about Pat's, Pat's story in his book, Where Men Win Glory. But, uh, but again, it's an example of a young person who had lots of energy and lots of ambition and a leader and all that. And he came to a very tragic end. The second book I read that made me want to uh, do this podcast is a book called Into Thin Air by John Krakauer. I love John Krakauer as a writer. I think my favorite book of John Krakauer's is Missoula, which is about the number of on-campus sexual harassments and rapes that go on in this country all the time. Into Thin Air is about uh, summiting Everest. And John was actually a mountain climber. And he joined this, this group that was going to try and climb the summit. This is back in 1996. Climbing Everest is a very dangerous uh, undertaking. It's killed more than 130 climbers since the British first visited it in 1921. And about one-fourth of the climbers who actually reach the summit end up dying on the way down. And actually on his expedition, five people died after they had reached the summit. John says in the book that his girlfriend reinforced her desire to marry him only after he said he'd quit climbing. But he, he said he'd failed to appreciate the grip climbing he had on his soul or the purpose it lent to his otherwise rudderless life. He said, I didn't anticipate the void that would loom in its absence. John also said that the notion that climbers are just merely adrenaline junkies chasing a, a fix is a fallacy. He said, at least in the case of Everest, because climbing Everest was primarily about enduring pain, subjecting yourself to weeks of turmoil, tedium, and suffering. And John said, it struck him that most of the people climbing were probably seeking, above all else, something like a state of grace. There was very little pleasure experienced. You had to be willing to throw caution to the wind, be willing to subject yourself to high risk, hardship, expense, ignoring the concerns of your loved ones. Another uh, climber, Thomas Hornbein, 
He's the author of a book about Everest called The West Ridge. He said that once on the mountain, he said, I knew or trusted that this would give way to total absorption with the task at hand. But at times I wondered if I had come along, if I had not come a long way, only to find that what I really sought was something I had left behind. That's a good quote. Let me say that one again. He said, but at times I wondered if I had not come a long way, only to find what I really was seeking was something I had left behind. That reminds me of Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz at the end who said, if I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, I won't go looking any further than my own backyard because if it isn't there, I never really lost it to begin with. Another author named A. 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 Alvarez, he wrote a book called The Savage God, a study of suicide. And he said the possibility of danger serves merely to sharpen his awareness and control. And perhaps this is a rationale for all the risky sports. You deliberately raise the ante of effort and concentration in order to clear your mind of trivialities. Your actions are deadly serious. That kind of fits, I think, for some of the kinds of men, I, and I guess women too, who are attracted to the army, to going to war. Last quote from a climber, John Task, T-A-S-K-E. John said, When I left the military, I kind of lost my way. I discovered I couldn't really speak to civilians. My marriage fell apart, but when I started to climb, the sport provided most of what had been missing for me in my civilian life. The challenge, the camaraderie, and the sense of mission. I think that's true for a lot of people who join the military. That's what they're looking for, and they don't know where else to find it. The third book I read was actually a book written by a dear friend of mine. Her name is Ginny Luther. And it's a story about her son, Bart. And this book has not been published yet. It's coming out sometime, I think, this spring. I think in early May. And the name of the book is called Blue Star Grit. And Ginny's son, Bart, was a really rambunctious kid, just like Pat Tillman. Driven. He was described as being hyper. He was a risk taker. He knew no fear. He was always aggressive, and, but he was also very kind and empathetic. And he was constantly engaging adults in power struggles as he strove for more independence. He had one of those temperaments where he was very independent-minded, intense. You know, some kids are just born that way. Risk takers, physical, restless, active. They love the outdoors. I read one time about these parents who, who sent their, their kid to school one day, the first day of kindergarten. And they had a little note pinned to his shirt that said, the opinions expressed by this child are not necessarily those of her parents. <laughs> That's what Bart was like. Teachers and other adults described Bart as being hyperactive, kind of wild, couldn't sit still, out of control, impulsive, uh, ODD, which means oppositional defiant disorder, wouldn't listen, didn't like to be told no, he wanted things his way, intense, stubborn, willful, like one of those wild colts kicking against the slats of the corral. A lot of kids like Bart are happiest when they're outdoors. They're also happiest when they're in charge and leading, doing what they love to do, if they're given a choice in what they're doing, if they're listened to and heard and they have a voice in things, if they have choices and decision-making, that's when you tend to get these kids at their best. I remember years ago, I saw a little girl. She was about, I think, around nine years of age. 
and her parents brought her to see me because she was having these huge meltdowns at home, but only at home. At school, she was described as being this perfect little angel. She was a good student. And at home, though, she was screaming and yelling, and she was saying, no, I won't. You can't make me all the time. And, and the parents didn't know what to do, so they brought her in to see me. So after getting some history with the parents and, and this little girl together, um, I, I had the parents go out so I could talk to this little girl. Her name was Gabby, all by herself. And I noticed that she was wearing a Girl Scout uniform. And so I said to her, hey, you know, there's a Girl Scout who lives down the street from me. And she just came to our house the other day to give us our Girl Scout cookies. And she told us that she had sold the most Girl Scout cookies of anybody in her troop. She had sold 100 boxes. I said, I think that's awesome. And this little girl, Gabby, said, oh, I sold the most boxes in my troop, too. I sold 150 boxes of cookies. And then she stopped and she looked me right in the eye and she said to me, I swear to God, she said, I love sales. So being valuable is a way that kids like this oftentimes are at their best when they have a sense of purpose. I won't give away what happens uh, in, in uh, my friend Ginny's book, uh, Blue Star Grit. But he came to a tragic end in the military. He had a tour in Iraq. Um, I'm sorry, was it Iraq or Afghanistan? I guess it was Afghanistan. And had, I, think, I think he was there for a couple of years. He was ahead of his platoon, was, was very well thought of, came back home, was living on a base, and then was tragically killed. So you have to read the story. It's a really beautiful, sad, but beautiful story. Um, again, another tragic ending to one of these kids who I think could have found perhaps a different way of expressing his energy. There are a lot of people throughout history who have been that kind of kid. Remember I, wrote, I read a story about uh, John Lennon of the Beatles who said when he was five years old, his mom had always told him that happiness was the key to life. When he went to school, the teacher asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up, and John wrote down, happy. The teacher uh, put his, uh, gave him his paperback and said he didn't understand the assignment, and John Lennon looked at the teacher and said, you don't understand life. <laughs> There's a woman, Elizabeth Blackburn. She was the first woman to, be, to become president of the Salk Institute, and she said that she was a very honorary child. One of those kids who didn't like to be told to dress up, didn't like to be told how to do her drawings. She has a memory in kindergarten of drawing this black locomotive train. And the teacher said that she had used so much black, or too much black. And she said, I was mad because she had another idea of how my train should look. One time she remembered a man at the home of one of her friends asked her what she wanted to do someday. And she said, I'm going to be a scientist. And the man said, what's a nice girl like you doing going into science? And she said, I was so shocked, but I kept my mouth shut. But she said, I was all the more determined. She said, in a way, I'm very grateful to that man. There's that spirit. But she poured it into science. Another quick example. A woman named Loretta Lynch. She's the first African-American woman to become a U.S. Attorney General. And she said, I was a very adventurous child. She said, I'm the only daughter and middle child and I always wanted to do everything my older brother did. She said, my brother and I were very close, but I was always the one who got us in trouble. My mom felt like if she is going to show her kids that you can do anything, then she could not accept discrimination. And they had no basis in reality. And had no basis in anything. 
she said it had to start with her. And she said, my mom always led by example, and that left a mark on me. She said her grandfather also worked with and hid African Americans in trouble with the law because they had no rights at that time. And she said, my father's community, people had no faith in the system that they would be treated fairly, especially people of color. And her grandfather said that should not be the case in America. She said, those two examples, my mom and my grandfather, stuck with her throughout her legal training and her career. So I guess my plea today is, can we please find other better alternatives in the military for young adults to experience risk, adventure, mission, and purpose? So I'm going to give you a couple of examples of of things that might fit that bill. Back in World War II, there were people who were conscientious objectors. They didn't want to fight, but they were willing to serve. And so 1,200 of these people were registered for the selective service. They didn't uh, serve in the military, but, but they found them other ways to serve their country through something called the Civilian Public Service Program. So these people worked in different locations, and they did things that were needed. They had six camps around the United States performing a variety of tasks like forest fire prevention, trail building, pest control in Wisconsin. Uh, a bunch of them worked in the dairy industry. The Bureau of Re- Reclamation oversaw these conscientious objectors constructing dams. They worked on farms. They uh, undertook irrigation projects. And the work that they did was considered very important, thus justifying the role of the conscientious objector. They didn't have to go to war to serve. Also during the war, there was something called the, the, the WPA, the Works Progress Administration. And they hired young people who were out of work, this is back during uh, the Depression, to do things like build bridges, roads, public buildings, public parks and airports. I remember when I did my year of, of fellowship training, one year in Portland, Oregon, uh, Mount Hood was like an hour drive away. And, as you, and there's a huge, beautiful ski lodge up there that is used for, actually for the U.S. Olympic team that, to train in the summer because they have uh, snow up there all year. And that, that whole lodge and all the drive up to it, it was all created to the WPA back during the Depression. It was beautiful, beautiful wood. There was a, I remember there was these um, uh, uh, what do you call, oh, totem poles that lined the whole drive up to, the, the, up to this big, huge lodge. It was beautiful. The WPA put around 8.5 million Americans to work. They built schools, hospitals, roads. Um, they, helped, they, uh, they worked on the Hoover Dam, the John Adams Building of the Library of Congress in D.C., the San Francisco Mint. <coughs> Excuse me. They built more than 4,000 new school buildings. They erected 130 new hospitals. They laid roughly 9,000 miles of storm drains and sewer lines. They built 29,000 new bridges. They constructed 150 new airfields. They paved or repaired 280,000 miles of roads, and they planted uh, 24 million trees to help with the loss of the topsoil during the Dust Bowl. They found ways for these young adventurous people to have their adventures and do something of purpose. Let me talk about a couple of examples of things that some young people have done in the last several years. One of them was, was my son, TJ. 
He was one of those rambunctious kids. He was our kid who liked to get into power struggles. He he walked at eight months, uh, just like um, Pat Tillman. The first time he got on a two-wheel bike with no train wheels, he rode up and down the street when he was like four and a half or five years of age. And he always got into he always wanted to get into power struggles because he wanted more power. It was little things along the way. Like I remember driving into the driveway and stopping the car, getting out and opening up the back seat for him to get out. And he would throw himself down on the back seat, screaming and yelling because he had wanted to open up the door himself. So we learned that instead of fighting him, we let him open up the door himself and he would walk in the house happy as a clam. Um, he loved when we had our weekly family meetings because every third meeting he got to lead it. He decided he wanted to go to college outside of the Midwest. So he, he had good grades in, in high school and he got um, a, a good scholarship. He also did some work uh, to make sure that he could pay for it because Ann and I paid for some of it, but not all of it. When he graduated from college, he did a two-year stint in something called Teach for America. His, his major was political science and he had a minor, I think, in in sociology or history. And everybody said, oh, he's going to go to law school. And he said, I'm not going to law school. He never wanted to go to law school. Didn't quite know what he wanted to do. So that was an adventure for him. He went to an uh, a inner city school in Chicago in a, in a middle school. And he worked with those kids. He taught them for two years, which was a huge challenge, a very challenging job. And then when he was done with his two-year stint in Teach for America, he decided he just needed some adventure. So he bought a backpack, he bought a tent, and he bought a ukulele, and he took off, and he went to New Zealand. Didn't know a soul there. Just decided, I'm just going to go and figure it out. And he was gone, I think, 22 months. He spent about a year in New Zealand. Uh, he did lots of hikes. He bungee jumped, did all kinds of fun kinds of things. He started running out of money, so he worked uh, in an orchard for a month, picking fruit. Then he traveled some more. Then he did the same thing, and then he traveled some more. Then he went to Australia, and he, he worked at this high-end seafood restaurant up at a, a city called Cannes, which is uh, the place you, that you leave from to go to the Barrier Reef. And he, he got his scuba certification on the Barrier Reef. Then he traveled around Australia. Then he traveled around Southeast Asia. Then he came back home. After having hiked and bungee jumped and camped out uh, all the way through New Zealand. When he came back, he worked for about six months, and he decided he wanted he had one more trip in mind, so he went to South America for about six months. Uh, his brother John met him there about a month in, and the two of them, for about five months, traveled all over South America. Uh, when TJ came back, uh, he decided he did not want to be a teacher, but he did want to work with the, with the, with disadvantaged youth. So he went back to Chicago, and he he started working with an organization called BAM, Become a Man. Uh, and and, and, that, and uh, he's also starting a, a side business on his own where he's helping to, to teach people how to work with young people. But all that adventure learned, helped him to learn to trust himself. He realized he could make anything happen, and it, and it gave him so much confidence. He was confident when he left on his, on his adventures, but he can't get even more so when he came back. One of my, my uh, past campers, who is also one of our camp counselors, Went to college for a year, wasn't really into it. She had always said she wanted to travel. She wanted some adventure. She was a free spirit. And so she worked at a restaurant, saved her money. And then she signed on for this, this thing called woofing. Uh, there's a website, 
www.oof.net. It stands for Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. Woof. Um, and it's a, it's a worldwide movement to link visitors with organic farmers, and they provide uh, an exchange. They work for the farmer, and they learn the skills, like how do you do organic farming? They, this girl went, went to England to one of these farms, and she uh, learned how to, to raise bees. She did all kinds of stuff. Uh, this organization started about 50 years ago, and it has grown from a small group in the 70s to this worldwide community of hundreds of thousands of people. So you, you participate in the daily life of your hosts. You help on the farm. You learn about sustainability. You experience a new culture. You meet new people. And then this, this woman who I know loved it. She felt so awesome doing all these things. And then she found some fun people who she worked with. And then they traveled around Europe for a month. Then she worked at another farm. And then she traveled around Europe for another month or six weeks. And then she finally came home. <clears throat> Great experience. What an adventure, right? Meeting new people, new cultures, learning skills along the way. It wasn't college and it wasn't the service. She found a way to have her adventure. Another one of my former campers, and uh, she's a camp, one of our camp counselors, although now she's married, has two little kids, and she owns her own business. But when she went to college, um, she found another way to have adventures for herself. I met her when she was about, I think, 13 or 14 years of age, and she was in major power struggles at home, one of those wild coats, colts kicking the slats of her corral, power struggles with her parents. She always wanted to try everything. She was a risk taker, <clears throat> did some partying, got in trouble. Um, but what I saw in her, what I saw her in my counseling practice was she was amazing, loved her spirit, loved her energy, loved her leadership, loved how powerful she was. And she loved camp. And she became one of our best camp counselors because of all that spirit, right? And she was a great role model. When she went to college, she did a little bit of partying her first year, but she was kind of over that. She was looking for something else to give her that sense of risk and adventure, all that. So what she found was rock climbing. She joined this club <clears throat> on campus. And they would take off on the weekends to, to state parks. And they wouldn't just go places and rappel down cliffs. They did some of that. But they also were doing like real rock climbing where you had to kind of hammer those little carabiners and use all that stuff. You had people who were hooked up to you, above you and below you. So she said she learned so much about teamwork, about trusting other people, about being part of a, of a collaboration in a team. And it gave her a tremendous sense of purpose. And she's carried a lot of those lessons she's learned from that into owning her own um, psychology business. She's a counselor and she has a bunch of people working for her. So I want you to start looking around for organizations that are, and opportunities for your young people where they can experience risk, adventures, mission, purpose. We don't, we don't value those kinds of experiences enough. So whether it's something like Teach for America or the Peace Corps, are woofing, service projects. Uh, about a year ago, not a year ago, about six months ago, back in August, it was 8-18-22, I interviewed a woman, Sarah Evans, about her project called the Well, it's called Well Aware. I'll put the link on in my uh, show notes after this podcast. She did some clean water projects in Africa, Haiti, Puerto Rico, where she was building wells in these little bitty villages. Who, these people desperately need water. 
And her, her not-for-profit, Well Aware, was named one of the top-rated not-for-profits uh, for the eighth consecutive year this past year. We need to start recognizing these people as, as heroes, not just soldiers and first responders. We need to let, let young people know these are places where you can have that sense of adventure and purpose. You don't need to join the military and be a soldier. Too many of our young people join the military and they're killed in action. And it's such a waste of energy. It's such a waste of a beautiful spirit. I guess I'm imploring you to, to open up our eyes as a culture to these other kinds of experiences where our kids can get the same sort of feeling that they get from the, from the military. These kids are awesome. Sometimes we judge them when they're little because they're into power struggles and because you know they get labeled as oppositional, oppositional defiant disorder and ADHD and they're, they're considered be, to be wild, whatever kind of kids. But underneath all that misbehavior is, is also a, an incredible spirit, independent-minded and intense. And when they're focused on things that they want to they do and they have choice in, they're amazing. They're leaders. They can do all kinds of amazing things. Let's stop judging and labeling them and instead directing them to more appropriate outlets for their energy. Thanks so much for listening to these podcasts and passing them on to your friends. Um, If you have one of these kinds of kids in your home, I hope this uh, made sense to you and gives you some alternatives. I'll be back here with a new podcast in a week. Until then, uh, have fun and good luck with your parenting. When you love riding a motorcycle, you want to ride it everywhere, even to a physical. Let's check your weight. Hop on the scale. Look at that. You're down a few pounds. Oh, yeah. Must be the new carbon fiber wheels. And when you love saving money, you want to save even more. That's why GEICO makes it easy to bundle your motorcycle and car insurance. I'm going to prescribe 91 octane for your engine knock, and we'll want to see you again in 3,000 miles. Kickstart your savings with GEICO Motorcycle. Bundle and save on the things you love. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah. That's me. Nothing extra. Just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.